Tonight on Huckabee, America faces Islamic extremism and socialism. Travis Tritt and Voyager tells their story. And the amazing Jimmy Wayne performs. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilby. And now, here's Mike Thank you so much. Oh, I love this studio audience. They are wired tonight. And that makes us feel better all over this entire theater. Thank you for joining us. Don't know if you know this, I bet you do, but this weekend marks the 50th anniversary of when Neil Armstrong became the first human to step on the surface of the moon. When he did, he uttered the immortal words that still ring deep within me. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Now, of course, if he'd been more sensitive and inclusive, he would have said, that's one small step for a homo sapien person, <laughs> one giant leap for people of all colors, genders, religion, ethnicities, and sexual orientations. I watched when President John F. Kennedy said in 1961 that we would put a man on the moon and we would return him safely before the end of the decade. Tragically, President Kennedy didn't live to see his vision, but I did. And I was always just amazed, and I was even watching on TV yet again when astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon while astronaut Michael Collins orbited the lunar surface to prepare to reunite them for the trip back home to a hero's welcome like no other. I was just a little kid when the president said we'd go to the moon, and I was a teenager when America actually pulled it off. And yes, it was America that did that, not some international globalist conglomerate of corporate kingpins. America. And we didn't do it in a vacuum. We were clearly in a race with the Soviet Union for the bragging rights to win the space race, and we did it. And we did it the way America was created to do things, in public, with accountability and exposure for the whole world to see. The Soviets created the culture to only tout their successes and lie about their failures. They did put the first man, excuse me, first person in space, but they had many failures and fatalities that they never admitted or even acknowledged. Now, when three of our astronauts were tragically killed in a fire on the launch pad, it was there for the world to see. When the moon-bound Apollo 13 astronauts almost suffocated because of a failure in their spacecraft before an extraordinary team of engineers were able to frantically work and find a solution, the whole world watched and they prayed. And in those days, it was still okay to publicly call for prayer, which our political leaders freely did. Having watched our nation promise to go to the moon and back and see him do it, I gotta be honest, I grew up in an age where I believed America could do anything. I loved my country. Heck, I still do. And I've got... I've got a real hard time understanding or identifying with people who enjoy the benefits of our freedom, but have nothing but contempt for our country. Sadly, some of them actually got elected to Congress and seem to have no awareness of a nation that while far from perfect, has provided opportunity, liberty, and hope for more people from around the earth than any country on earth ever has. And we didn't just lift a rocket to the moon, we've lifted more people out of poverty than any nation. We've lifted people with free education to endless opportunity. And we've lifted women and minorities to equality like no other nation. Sure, it wasn't a perfect path and we didn't always do it right, but we fulfilled the words of our founders by becoming a more perfect union. Not perfect, but more perfect than it was. 
This week, the New York Slimes and the Washington Compost <laughs> both ran editorials diminishing the landing on the moon by lamenting that the space program was mostly the achievement of white males. I kid you not. Now, at the time, I truly don't remember peeing anybody being so dopey as to even think about the color or gender of the astronauts or the team who created the space program. They were Americans. And there were women and people of color who worked to get those astronauts to the moon and back. We left a few things on the moon that remain there today. I just wish we'd taken a few idiots who refused to celebrate that historic accomplishment and we'd left them there. Well, there is a push underway to brand any criticism of radical Islam as racist or xenophobic. But my next guest knows this issue from both sides. He is the first former Muslim to be president of a Christian university, Truett McConnell University in Georgia. I had the incredible privilege of speaking at Truett McConnell University earlier this year, and I met this college president and heard his riveting story, and I met his wife, who has her own incredibly timely story that we're going to hear about tonight. But for now, I want you to welcome the co-author of Unveiling Islam and the president of Truett McConnell University, Dr. Amir Tanner. It is an honor to have you with me. When I first met you, I just was stunned by your story. You grew up in a Muslim home. Mm -hmm. uh, what was that like growing up in a Muslim home here in America? Well, uh, we immigrated here to the United States. My father's Turkish, mother's Swedish, uh, wife's Czech. <laughs> and uh, when we immigrated here, it was the 1960s. It was the pioneer of Islam. There was only 100 mosques in 1960. Now, of course, more than 2,000. And so my father was one of the pioneers of the mosque there in Columbus, Ohio, where we were raised. And uh, were devout in our faith. And he taught us how to be devout Muslim boys. All uh, three boys, myself, I'm the youngest, and two older ones are both born overseas. And I'm glad to tell you today, all are born again Christians and know the Lord Jesus Christ. So that must have been a shock to the family system. When did you become a believer in Jesus? Uh, there was a student uh, that just wouldn't give up on me, invited me to every little event a Southern Baptist church had up in Columbus, Ohio, things I'd never heard of before, invited me to a lock-in. I'd never heard of a lock-in. Uh, it is in the Bible. If you look under the word hell, you will find, you'll find a lock-in somewhere there. There's a lot of youth pastors out there that are right now saying, boy, that's right. And, but it was a revival service. Remember hmm. when uh, Methodists and Baptists and others had revival service, and I just went on a Thursday night. For the first time in my life, I got to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace for me. How old were you when that happened? I was in middle school. Both my brothers were in high school, and we were saved, all three of us, all three Muslim boys within a year of each other. How did your family react to that? Were they just... Not good. Now, That's my mother, good. who yeah. had converted to Islam when she married my father, yeah. uh, she had become disgruntled with faith. So to her, she wasn't uh, excited or displeased at all. But my father, of course, did not take it well uh, and disowned all of us. Uh, we have recently seen uh, several congressmen, uh, particularly... Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, both of whom are Muslim. And, and, you know, I don't have a problem if people choose to be Muslim. I do have a problem with people who are anti-Semitic. I have a problem with uh, Congresswoman Omar, who believes in the boycott, divestiture, and sanction movement against Israel. And the hideous comments she has made, including about 9-11, she said, some people did some things. I, I want you to help me understand, does that come from where she thinks and believes, how, how could she say those things and not understand why Americans are highly offended by that? Yeah, it, you know, this all started in the 60s when we started coming, but it really birthed with Keith Ellison becoming a congressman out of Minnesota in 2006. And what did he do? He took the oath on the Quran. Mm -hmm. And when I was asked, well, does that offend you as a Christian? I said, no, it offends me as an American. You can't put your hand on the Quran and support democracy. It's not possible. The Quran is a theocratic book and a theocratic political book. 
And, and you see that, and you see recognition that the more literal you take the Quran, the more likely you are to become militant and have these type of BDS views and speak about how uh, you're hypnotized by Israel and so forth. It comes from verses of the Quran, like chapter 5, do not take a Jew or a Christian as your friend or protector, or you become like them. But what we're seeing is an increased level of a radical mindset, that it's an all or nothing. Does that shock or surprise you in any way? It doesn't. You know, when you look, you have to look at who's building the mosques and who's coming over. And when you see refugees from Somalia, which is a more strident country, when you see that the majority of mosques are funded by uh, Saudi money or money such as that, then it's not going to be surprising that Saudi theology is the greatest export out of Saudi Arabia, not oil. You had to worry that writing a book called Unveiling Islam mm -hmm. was going to be controversial and would bring an enormous level of scorn upon you, uh, but you did it anyway. I mean, what, what was it that said, I don't care what the risks are, I need to tell this story? Yeah, you know, after 9-11, I think some of that spurred it from our, our spirit. My brother and I wrote it together and finished up pretty quickly. We just wanted to educate, in particular, Christians on to do two things, how to understand Islam, but also how to win Muslims to Jesus. Because mm. the crucial aspect to all of this is still John 3.16, that God so loved the world, that includes today 1.8 billion Muslims. And I still have, of course, Muslims on my side of the family, and I would love for a Christian to share the love of the Lord Jesus Christ with them. And I think that's a powerful part of your book, is that you're not being condemning. Mm. You're trying to be redemptive. You're hoping to say, if you're a Christian, you really love people. Love Muslims, but love them in a way that may help them to, uh, to come to Christ, as you have experienced in your life. Um, before I let you go, I, I got to tell you, the, the college, the university, Truett McConnell University that you lead, is an amazing place. It's quadrupled in size and enrollment since you've been there. You now have a number of graduate degrees. It, it's an extraordinary place. What I was most impressed by when I was on the campus, you don't mind being a biblical-oriented university, you make no apologies for that. Why is that so important? Well, there are a lot of schools that call themselves Christian, uh, but the, the words are one thing, the actions are another. And I would rather train 300 warriors and 3,000 wimps. And what... <laughs> what uh, <laughs> the, the joy our faculty get to see and what we get to see is we get to raise up a generation of believers who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, every student has to take a great commission minor, which means a set of theology classes and, and mission trips and so forth that they have to take. Uh, that's a joy because when they graduate, they are going to be the best business person. They're going to be the best missionary. But our key is we want them to be the best witness for the Lord Jesus Christ that they can possibly be. It is a refreshing atmosphere. If people are not familiar with Truett McConnell University, I hope they get familiar. And by the way, let me say, you can get your copy of Unveiling Islam, the very book that Dr. Kanner wrote, along with other of his books. You can get them on Amazon. I really think this is an important book, and everyone who loves this country ought to read it and find out the philosophical underpinning of Islam and, and what it really is about. And if you're looking for an exceptional university for your kids, I'm going to tell you, I'd check out Truett McConnell University at truett.edu. I've been to the campus. It is refreshing to experience a university campus, unafraid, unapologetic, to build an education on biblical standards. By the way, you can also follow Dr. Canner on Twitter, Parler, and Instagram at Amir Canner. Now, here's Keith Bilbrey to do a little unveiling himself about the rest of tonight's show. I would love to. Next, the rise of socialism in America. Then comedian Kim Curley and the inspiring Nick Voyager country music star Travis Tritt and foster care advocate and singer Jimmy Wayne. It's all coming up on Huckabee. Welcome back to our show. Dr. Kanner is hanging around because my next guest is his wife. Now, this may just be America's ultimate power couple because each has absolutely spellbinding stories of living firsthand in two of the most significant systems of our world today. Just as he unveils the truth about radical Islam, she warns students of the dangers of socialism in America because she lived it 
growing up in Soviet-era Czechoslovakia. Please welcome Hannah Kanner. Hannah, thank you for coming. Thank you for letting me be here. Several months ago, I met you and we sat and visited, and I was riveted by the story that you experienced as a young girl growing up under the Soviet-dominated Czechoslovakia of your family's life. What was life like under communism? Well, I would start off that um, I was always a perfect child because I was a pastor's child. <laughs> um, I was lucky that my father was a pastor, my grandfather, my uncle was a pastor. So all, all was wonderful. So I heard the gospel ever since I was little. But growing up under communism as a Christian has its challenges. Since you're born, they start a file when they write enemy of the state enemy of the regime. So when I was 14 years old, I had to have a mandatory meet meeting with our principal of the school. And he asked me, Hannah, what would you like to do when you grow up? And I said, I would love to be a teacher. And he looked at my file and he said, mm, that's not going to happen. And I was like, OK, can I be a nurse? Not, not going to happen. And I looked at him so, and I said, what can I be? And he said, Hannah, you need to understand one thing. Because you're a Christian, you're the enemy of the state, Therefore, we cannot have you anywhere you can have influence or other people where you can share the gospel. So your future is going to be working in a shoe factory with deaf people so you cannot share the gospel. That is unbelievable. Did you ever experience or did members of your family experience uh, physical or intense kind of uh, repercussions for being Christian? My father, because he was a pastor, anytime he would be preaching, he told me, and this is not maybe like six years ago, he said that he would have the secret police, uh, KGB, uh, would come and listen up on his sermons to make sure he didn't say anything anti-government. And if he had any kind of guests speak there in English, he would have to go to special interrogations. And he never told me about it. And he would always say, ah, oh, I just have to run the errands. And he finally opened up and he said, Hannah, you don't understand. It was not physical abuse, but emotional. They would be yelling at me, threatening me with uh, taking our family away, uh, with not giving him any money to support our family. So it was lots of emotional abuse. Recent studies have shown that over 50% of younger Americans think socialism would be terrific. What would you say to those people? Because you lived under it firsthand. The truth is socialism is anti-country, uh, anti destroys country, it's anti-freedom. So if you want a taste of socialism, be ready for communism to step in, because those two are hand in hand right there. And it is very dangerous. And I say to um, the wonderful AOC squad members, <laughs> um, you know what? I would love for her to go and live in socialism for two weeks and see how she does. When Just she two does. weeks, Just think. two weeks. <laughs> and I say you need to understand one thing. Once government starts telling you what you can or cannot do, you're going to uh, completely lose what America is standing for, which is government for the, of the people, right? It's, it's you as Americans have a right to say something. Well, not anymore. Um, because, you know, you're not allowed to have your opinion yeah. because immediately you're a racist or some, something else. Hannah, you became an American citizen. Um, there are a lot of people who say, well, you know, America's not a very good country, but you wanted to be a citizen. What makes America a place you wanted to be a part of? Freedom. To me, America was always symbol of democracy, symbol of freedom, symbol of uh, being able to say what I think, like uh, religious liberty, all this. This is, these are precious things, and I don't think people realize how precious they are until they're taken away. Thank you. I just love you both. It's a delight to have you here. My thanks to Hannah Kanner. And if you want a dialogue with Hannah about the danger of socialism and the power of Christian faith, her email address is on the screen so you can get in touch. And if you're looking for a university, as I said, that'll educate your kids instead of indoctrinate them with socialism, I hope you'll learn more about Truett McConnell at truett.edu. We've got a lot more indoctrination-free segments that are still to come. And Keith Bilbrey is going to indoctrinate you about what's up. Well, next, the comedy of Kim Curley and the inspiring like of Nick Voyagic. Later, country music's Travis Tritt plus Jimmy Wayne performs on Huckabee.
Welcome back. Now, if you signed up at MikeHuckabee.com for my free newsletter, you'd have learned all about President Trump's tweets and the squad squawking over America and its greatness. So don't miss out on a daily assessment of the news. No filters or restrictions. You can sign up today. It's all free. And by the way, be sure to follow me on Twitter at GovMikeHuckabee for more thoughts on the nation and a little bit of fun as well. Our next guest didn't start performing stand-up comedy until her 36th birthday, but it hadn't slowed her down one bit. She has performed from coast to coast. She's got some great dry bar comedy routines that are online. She's even traveled overseas to entertain our troops. I want you to give a very warm welcome for the first time to our stage, Miss Kim Curley. I did start when I was 36, and I've been doing comedy for over 20 years, so add that up. I've got, uh, yeah, I'm older. I've got two grown daughters. They're amazing and successful. They're 36, 34 years old. Um, I'm very proud of them, and I'm learning, you know, how to talk to them now, how to navigate these new waters of adulthood. I'm learning, you know, things like, how do I ask them for money? <laughs> it's not that I need it. It's just that they took from me for so long that, you know. We go out to dinner or lunch, and when the check comes, I just sit and wait. And we stare at each other. It's uncomfortable for us all. So, I was given my mother's curse. I don't know if any of you had the mother's curse given to you. Clap if you had the mother's curse given to you. One day, you'll have a child just like you. There's a woman, yeah, and you'll know. You'll know what you put me through. I had her just like me. She, is, she even looks just like me. I don't know. You know, it's just, you think that, well, if they're like you, maybe you can understand each other, but that's not the case. Not the case at all. So, <laughs> I don't know, teenagers too. When she turned into a teenager, it was really, really difficult. Teenagers are like cats that lay around on dirty clothes. <laughs> they look at you like, what are you doing here? You know, if you don't feed cats, they go away. Teenagers will do the same thing. <laughs> Call up, what's for dinner tonight, mom? Nothing. Well, I'm just gonna stay over here for dinner, okay. <laughs> do that too long though, it's, an a fel it's a felony, so you gotta be careful about it. <laughs> Nowadays, teenagers are real different. I don't know what it is about teenagers. They're not leaving home. They're not going home. I mean, they're staying there forever. When I was growing up, when 18 years old, you either got a job and went to college, you're out. Yeah, you with me? Nowadays, teenagers, they're not going anywhere. They're not getting their license, nothing. I think they're smart. Where's Billy? He's in his room. Been there for 25 years. So I, I, give my daughter, I give my daughter the mother's curse. True story, I did this. I waited until she had her little cat friends over one day. There was like five of them and they were like laying in her room. You know, and they're all dirty. I even stopped telling her to clean her room. I would just shove open the door and put my head in there and go, ah, and then shut it. Because, you know, therapist said we need to communicate as best as we could. But I waited until her friends were over and, and I had this purple fairy outfit. Big, big wings and stuff. So it's very nice. And so, and I had a scepter and I had, you know, a little thing put on my head and I glitter and I shoved open the door and I ran in. I started throwing glitter around and her friends are like, oh, hi, Miss Curly. Shannon, your mom's a purple fairy. And she's on the, she's on the bed and she's playing guitar and she just rolls her eyes at me. So I take the scepter and I point it at her and I said, Someday you'll have a child just like you. <laughs> and I ran out. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. She, she just looked at me and rolled her eyes like, whatever. She never even mentioned it until she was 25 years old at Christmas. I said, you know what? That's some funny stuff. I'm doing that on the Huckabee Show one day. I'm Kim Curley. Thank you so much. You just really related to, I think, every 
mom out there who's ever raised well, teenagers. It looks like my audience. Looks yeah. like my audience out there. <laughs> Why did you wait to 36, though, to go on the comedy circuit? I had kids and everything. And, you know, it was funny. I, I had used to watch comedy on TV, of course. And um, I would just sit there and I would not laugh. I would just go, I thought about that. I thought that. <laughs> and it was like, I found my people. And then when I turned, I, well, it was my 35th birthday. I had my family around. I made my brother laugh so hard he lost his breath. And he said, what a waste. You should be doing something with this. And so... I took a That's class. That's actually how it happened? Yeah. Then I took a class the next year. A friend of mine bought a class for me, and on my 36th birthday, I went up. And my brother came two and a half hours just to see me do five minutes. At a comedy, comedy club, at a right? At a comedy club in Austin, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And then how did it become a, a career? Well, I was obsessed. I was obsessed with it. I had, to, I had to be on stage. That first time wasn't enough. It was crazy. So I did not miss a, an open mic in San Antonio. We had several open mics a week. I did not miss one for four years. Mm. I never missed an open mic. And then it was... It was uh, it was a commitment. What did your daughters think when you started getting into comedy? Did they, did they, did they say, oh, this is great. Our they, mom's a comedian. <laughs> yeah, they did, sort of. They were little. <laughs> I did, I'd bring them to the club. They met a lot of people. They met a lot of famous people. Because I started opening. I thought it was great when I started opening. They met Chong. They met um, Louis Black, Ron White. And uh, so, you know, they, it was kind of cool for them. Yeah. But when I went into radio, morning radio, what do you talk about? You talk about your family. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to tell you, after the show you're going to be able to uh, want to catch Kim's digital exclusive comedy set. You can get that by going to Huckabee.tv. So there's more of Kim. And if you want even more, visit MyUmbrellaDrink.com. If you want to join her efforts to support finding a cure for MS, you should visit her on Facebook. Now, Keith, I don't want you to be funny because Kim's already handled that role. All I want out of you, just tell us what we have coming up. Oh, I think I can do that. Coming up, Nick Boyerchik describes life without lens. Then, Travis Stretch rise to country fame. And Jimmy Wayne's journey from foster care to Nashville success. Lots more Huckabee is on the way. Welcome back to our show. My next guest was born without arms or legs and was given no medical reason for his condition. Faced with countless challenges and obstacles, God has given him strength and optimism to surmount what others might simply call impossible. He shared his life and God's love in over 69 countries. And he's also the author of this book, Be the Hands and Feet, living out God's love for all his children. It's a truly powerful read. Friends, it is a real joy to welcome Nick Vujicic. Nick, thank you for coming. My pleasure to meet you. It is an honor to meet you. Thank you. Hello. You know, Nick, when I read your story, you've spoken in person to over 8 million people all over the world. True. You conduct incredible crusades and evangelistic missions. You know, it doesn't seem like anything slows you down. You got four children, just had a couple of uh, twin girls about 18 months ago, two other children. But a lot of people are going to say, how can you do all of that without arms or legs? Well, first of all, I just want everyone to know that I, I don't see myself as anything more special or valuable uh, in the eyes of God. And I just hope in my wife, first of all, who's the champion, to hold our fort down while daddy goes around the world and preaches the gospel, um, to know that God can take any broken pieces in our life and really help people understand uh, that he enjoys uh, using the foolish things to mm. confound the wise. For a man without arms and legs to be his hands and feet and stand in front of the gates of hell and redirect traffic, from a <laughs> child who was bullied at school who attempted suicide at age 10, mm to then going to a double degree in accounting and financial planning and meeting 18 presidents and even speaking in front of national congresses around the world, allowing children with special needs to go to school for the first time. All I love to say to that, you know, kind of question to people is, it's a miracle and it's all thanks to God and we are just beginning. That's a beautiful story. <laughs> Not with the expansion of family. We're done with that part. Well, I mean, one of the but, things uh, that I, I knew you did, you went to the Ukraine. Yes. You convinced the Ukrainian government that they needed to have educational programs and mainstream 
children with disabilities. They had never done that before. Well, it was beautiful in 2017. I don't know if anyone remembers this, but there was a 500-year reformation where 2017 was the 500-year uh, anniversary that everyone could talk about the Bible. Yeah. I was privileged to talk to the Ukrainian government about the Bible, led them in a prayer on their knees, asking God to forgive them of their sins and heal their land. Wow. And I didn't really even talk about the school system. But three weeks later, they said, did you hear? I said, what's that? They said, now children with special needs can go to school for the first time. And so there are amazing opportunities where um, whether we speak much about the education system or not, I think just seeing a man without arms and legs smiling, living a life full of joy and purpose, uh, challenges everyone to know that every single person has value and a purpose in life. Now, were your parents believers? Did they encourage you as when you were a child? Or, or what was their whole perspective of, of, of you, your life, your future, your hopes? Well, when I went to school, a lot of kids looked at me and it was a little awkward. So they'd ask me what happened. I'd just say cigarettes. <laughs> and when I came home... <laughs> you kill smoking for all those kids in your I school. I so good. <laughs> you know, one day I might be a sit-down comedian or something. But, um, <laughs> I'll do that in You've Vegas got a good one start night. At it, I can tell yeah, you. we'll do it good. But um, I, I was, I was always, you know, someone who was surrounded by love at home. You know, mom and dad saying, "Don't worry, you're beautiful. God loves you. God's got a plan for you. You're special." <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to be special. I wanted arms and legs. Yeah. And I, at the same time, though, everyone's always waiting for a circumstance to change or something or a season to change in our life before we feel like we can be happy. So I wasn't, this, I wasn't any different. I was the same as everyone else on that. But my mom and dad always said, don't give up on God. God's got a plan for you. But deep down, even on my wedding night, it was the first time my dad told me, he looked me in the eye and he said, I never thought you'd get married. <laughs> and I'm like, love you, dad, too. Uh, I mean, he hoped that I would be married, but I mean, my wife is absolutely incredible. Her name Where did you meet? We met in Dallas. It was love at first sight, couldn't huh. feel my legs. And... Um, <laughs> I and, love your sense of humor. Yeah, so we, her name's Kane, it's half Japanese, half Mexican name. So we call that Japsican. <laughs> and um, we have four children, Kyoshi, Dayan, uh, six and four years old, and twin girls, Ali and Ollie. And uh, we, we met there, and based on a friendship, we had courting uh, months, about 12 months before we had me pop the question. And... Uh, was able to put the ring in a cream puff. She fed me the cream puff, and then I said, baby, let me kiss your hand, and I put the ring on her finger, so. That really was the way you did it? Truly, yeah, that was the short What version. a unique way to I present need, a wedding ring. I needed to figure out a way that I don't need help to do that. Yeah. And so it took me a while, but it, I thought it was pretty cool. I think it's pretty unique for sure. She thought it was Now cool. every woman in America is gonna say when she gets a cream puff, <laughs> this is the moment, this is the moment. <laughs> You know, you, you preach now, and you even have a tent that you use because you didn't have enough seats in some of the places. 8,000 people can get in the tent that you do a lot of your evangelistic work all over the world. I mean, this is pretty amazing. Yes, it was, uh, it's been incredible to go around the world. In Ukraine, it was 800,000 people face-to-face -face with 53 million people watching wow. uh, in 26 countries through the Ministry of Life Without Limbs. We're based in California. Mm. Uh, so we have the Big Jesus Tent. And God willing, that's going to be coming up for a third time uh, in Southern California, uh, eight nights, um, four nights in a row, and then four nights in a row. And uh, as an evangelist, my heart is burdened for what happens after people give their life to Jesus. So out of eight million people, we've seen over a million give their life to Jesus. But our burden is such that, well, what happens after? So we've heard that uh, whether it's Palau or Billy Graham or Franklin Graham or uh, uh, Greg Laurie or any other ministry, including ours, yeah. if you do it at a big stadium, only 3% find a local home church and be plugged to the Ooh. family of God. And yeah. so we've actually reverse engineered discipleship groups in the tent. And uh, we're actually getting a little bit better results than that. But for every person who gives their life to Jesus, Mike, you know this more than anything, it's the greatest thing in heaven when everyone stops and says, hey, Another one just came home. Oh, so what a we beautiful, are so thankful. Beautiful so thankful. story. Nick, you are an inspiration and an encouragement. There are a lot of people, I'm convinced, watching us, and they're saying, you know, if, if Nick, who has no arms or legs, finds this level of joy in his life and purpose and direction that he's unselfishly given the gospel, then what am I complaining about? And what a great, great testimony. 
I, I'm thankful to God that this is my fifth book, Be the Hands and Feet. And, and what I'm trying to emanate in this book is understanding that not everyone's called to be an evangelist. We all are part of the Great Commission, um, but not all of us are called to be a foster, a foster parent for a foster kid in America. Yeah. There are half a million kids waiting for a home. Um, but we can all cook a meal for a foster uh, family. We all can go and still visit the elderly and go see the sick. Um, we can do all that God has asked us to do. He will always pay for what he orders. And it, mm. it's, you've heard this before. It's not about uh, your capability, it's your availability. And so being, be the hands and feet and sharing God's love for all of his children. Listen, if you have a teenager who's depressed, have you ever gone on a missions trip with them and get your fingernails dirty and mm. go show them the homelessness in our country and go help someone? I feel like one of the greatest um, initiatives that you can put in your family's life is letting them see poverty and the need out there. And not just mm. that it's me, 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 let's go to church. Let's go out there and show them that God loves them. You know, Nick, it's not that you have a message. You are a message, and it's a beautiful story. And this book, Be the Hands and Feet, you can get it at lifewithoutlimbs.org. Now, while you're there, you can find all of Nick's books, because there are more of them, DVDs, you can learn about his ministry, subscribe to his newsletter. Again, the address, lifewithoutlimbs.org. Also, follow him on Facebook. Be his friend. I can tell he needs some friends out there. And Twitter, at Nick Vujicic. And you'll probably need to look at the screen to know how to spell that, because it took me a long time to learn how to say it. Now, the voice of our show, Keith Bilbrey, is going to tell us why you don't want to miss the rest of tonight's show. So tell us, Keith. Well, coming up, two of country music stars. First, Mike sits down with the legendary Travis Tritt. And then, Jimmy Wayne sings right here on Huckabee. Welcome back. Travis Tritt is his own man in life and in country music. Choosing not to wear a cowboy hat in Nashville, man, that's like wanting to play football without a helmet. But Travis did it, showing off his long locks. But seven platinum or higher albums, 20 top 10 singles later, I'd say he did all right, even if Waylon Jennings teased him and said, son, you need a hat. Well, Travis Tritt, dropped by our studio to talk about his great career and how things got started for him all the way back in Marietta, Georgia. Travis, you grew up in Marietta, Georgia. Uh, the story is, you gotta confirm whether this is true. Your singing career was launched because of the song, Everything is Beautiful, at a R Sunday school singing. That's exactly right. True? Ray Stevens, that song was a big hit right about the time that I was in a children's church <laughs> in our Assembly of God Church in Marietta, Georgia. And when that song came about, um, they wanted me to sing all the lead parts. How old were you when that happened? I think I was about five. Wow. Maybe. So somebody saw talent in you when you were just a little tyke. Apparently. Apparently <laughs> so. Did you envision some point in your childhood that you wanted to sing for a living, or was that something that came later on? Not really for a living. My dad, when I started getting into the music program in our church, my dad said many times to my mother, you're going to ruin that boy. You're going to ruin that boy. He came from a very uh, strict farm uh, family. Uh -huh. Everybody that he knew that played music was too sorry to work. And they all ended up either being <laughs> drunks or just lazy. And the last thing in the world that he wanted to see happen to his son was that. So he tried to discourage my mother from allowing me to sing or get involved in music. I'm, I'm so glad he was unsuccessful in convincing your mother because we would have missed some of the great country music of all time. Well, thank you. That you continue to make. 30 years is a long time in this business. Most people don't last that long. To be able to look back now over the last 30 years and realize that 
it has been a tremendous career. There was a unique class of artists who broke out in 89. Garth Brooks, Clint Black, Alan, uh, Jackson. Alan Jackson, and Travis Tritt. Was there something about the music that you were doing or something about the manner in which you conducted it, even from a business standpoint, that gave you the ability to last when other people had a two-year career, never heard of them again? Um, in that particular group of the class of 89, I kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. And even though I was doing traditional country just like those guys were doing, I also wanted to bring in the other influences that I had growing up, which were obviously the gospel, mm -hmm. bluegrass, the southern rock, and the blues influence. And I got a lot of pushback from uh, people in the industry, but uh, the fans loved it. Yeah. And I realized very early on that as long as the fans like what you're doing, you must be doing something right. You understood who your boss was. And it wasn't the music executives. It was the people out there buying the music, loving the music, and making your career what it is. I can't end this without talking about one of the most, uh, I, I think, remarkable, maybe legacies that you're going to have for the rest of your life and beyond. You brought the Eagles back together, 1993. <laughs> How in the world did Travis Tritt get the Eagles to speak to each other again after many years <laughs> of hating each other by their own testimony? <laughs> well, I was part of a, a album that was a tribute to the Eagles. I got a call one day from um, their management office, and they said, we want yours to be the first single to promote the album. We also want to do a video for it. Do you have any idea of what you would like to do for a video? And off the top of my head, I said, yeah, why don't we get the Eagles back together? And there was dead silence on the other end of the phone. I'm sure there was. Dead <laughs> silence. And somebody said, well, we don't know if we could ever make that happen. And I said, well, you know, I come from a long line of if you don't ask, you don't get. And what does it hurt to at least ask? Uh-huh. And we got in touch with Don Henley, and Don Henley said, if Glenn Fry will do it, I'll do it. And Glenn Fry said, if Don will do it, I'll do it. So we knew if we could get those two, we could probably get the whole group back together. You know, I've never tried to take any credit for, for making that happen. I just wanted to do a cool video. Well, you did a little more than that. You brought the Eagles back together. They've only made a gazillion dollars in their resurrected <laughs> career. I think they owe you a cut of that, Travis. <laughs> You should get a lawyer and go after those guys. They owe you big time. What a great story. Oh, you man. know, if you never brought the Eagles back together, you've given us Travis Tritt. And for that, we are grateful. Your music has filled our minds, ears, hearts, and souls for a long time. And I hope it continues to. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you for being here. What a pleasure. And Travis is storming across the U.S. on tour this summer and fall. He's got over 40 shows lined up before the end of the year, and you need to get out and see him. You can find out more at TravisTritt.com. That's also where you're going to get his new double CD release and download entitled Homegrown. Don't miss out on this gent's incredible music. All right, Keith, I'm going to see. I know you don't have a hat on tonight, but we'll see if you can top that. Well, let's see here. I'll see your Travis Tritt, and I'll raise you a wonderful foster care advocate and country music singer. Mr. Jimmy Wayne is up next on Huckabee. Welcome back to our show. My next guest is a Country Music Award-winning recording artist, a New York Times best-selling author. He's a keynote speaker and an advocate for children in foster care. Please welcome Jimmy Wayne. Jimmy, thank you for thank being you here. Thank you so much for having me. I, I am so impressed. Some of the songs you write, powerful messages. We're going to get to hear one of them here in a little while. Life has not always been really a, a, a cake for you, with all the icing and candles on top, you've had some tough times. Grew up in a foster home, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I grew up in uh, multiple foster homes. I went in when I was eight years old and uh, was moved around quite a bit, uh, along with my sister, younger, uh, younger sister, and um, ended up aging out. Uh, I 
was on my own at 16. Ended up living on the streets for a while in North Carolina, and I was rescued by a wonderful uh, Christian family in their mid-70s. Took me in and, wow. and uh, really uh, gave me a chance to go back to school. I had quit school. Gave me a chance to go back to school, go to college, pursue and catch my dream of, of um, playing music. Well, you're writing some great stuff now. And, and this book that you've written <laughs> is fantastic. Thank Walk you. to Beautiful. Yes, sir. And, and you've done something, Jimmy, that I'm just blown away by. You walked from Nashville, Tennessee to Phoenix, Arizona sure to bring awareness of the importance of foster children mm -hmm. and of raising the age of foster children from 18 to 21. Because of your work, several states have now raised the age for foster children. Absolutely. That's clearly important to you. Yes. Obviously, for now, we understand the reason. Absolutely. Well, so, New Mexico just extended foster care to age 21 as of this week, so that's, mm. I think it's the 29th state to do that. And, it's, and what it does, it saves each state money when they do this. Um, and I hope that every state would recognize that. Because a lot of the kids, if they don't have a place to go, they end up getting into jail, incarcerated. Mm -hmm. It costs more. I know this for a Absolutely. fact as a governor. It costs more to put a person in prison for one year than it does to put them in any college or university Amen. in that state, That's right. pay full tuition, all their books, room and board, and give them spending money. Yep. It makes a better investment. So why not help them now and, and give them two, three additional years to transition into adulthood and become productive citizens? rather than waiting till they're in their 20s and, and having to take care of them while they're in jail. But I want to say something about this book. Um, I did walk halfway across America every step of the way. I met some really incredible people. I met some great people in Arkansas. Good. And some, <laughs> and some fun, funny folks. <laughs> there, there, there are a few of those. They're probably my relatives. I met Just some funny folks in Arkansas. <laughs> but um, I, um, I, uh, I wrote this uh, book with... Um, Ken Abraham, who is, uh, he's probably now 18-time uh, New York Times best-selling author, but um, it's like all the stars just lined up. When I got back from the walk, um, I didn't know what the next step was going to be. And I heard that voice say, start writing your story, mm. and started out, was going to be Facebook blogs. Wow. But it just goes to show you what God does with ideas that you have, these small ideas you have. He says, no, it's not going to be a Facebook blog. It's going to be a three-time New York Times bestseller. That's what I'm going to do with it. And he has. Well, God has his hand on you. The song that you're going to do with us in a few moments is one of the most just gut-punching, beautiful, stunning songs I have heard in years. Thank you. I can't wait for us to be able to do it. Uh, I just want to tell you something, Jimmy. God has blessed you and blessed us with having you here. Thank you. Thank you. Now, as Jimmy gets ready to sing, Keith is going to tell you how you can get this inspiring book, Walk the Beautiful, and stay connected with Jimmy Wayne. Keith? Well, to get Jimmy's book, Walk to Beautiful, The Power of Love and a Homeless Kid Who Found the Way, please go to jimmywayne.com. There you can find all his music, concerts, and booking information as a keynote speaker. That's jimmywayne.com. And after the show, make your way to Huckabee.tv for Jimmy's exclusive performance of Sarah Smile. Now, here to sing I Love You This Much is Jimmy Wayne. You can't remember Times that he thought Does my daddy love me? Probably not That didn't stop him Wishing that he did Didn't keep him from wanting Or worshiping him Guesses he saw him About once a year he can still feel the way he felt Standing in tears Stretching his arms out As far as they'd go Whispering, Daddy Won't you to know I love you this much
hate him for what he had done. Cause what kind of father could do that to his son? He said, damn you, daddy, the day that he died. The man didn't blink, but the little boy cried. the whole world to know. 